All right. Well, we've written back to um, another of Adam's questions that has a part related to what some things that we've just talked about. Um, balancing work and family life and relationships. It's a little bit of a two-part. How did you handle balancing your work and family life, especially during the times of writing My Big Toe? Um, if your work can contribute to the entropy reduction of many people, such as writing My Big Toe, is it wiser to spend time towards this rather than the extra date night with the wife? What if your loved ones don't understand? <laughs> yes, well, that is a balance that you, that you have to do. And I would say that, well, I guess the first question was, you know, how did I do that when I was writing My Big Toe? When I was writing My Big Toe, it was a very intense time for me because this book was taking a lot of time to write. I would probably work every night till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, then get up and go to work and uh, come back, and I would start it as soon as my, you know, like kids were in bed sort of thing. And I had to, at the same time, take care of Pamela's needs, things that she needed me to do. And the idea is as long as there were family needs, things that, that uh, I needed to do for the family, whether it was with, the, with my wife or my children, I did those first. And then I worked on my book. And that means that sometimes I'd have to stay up until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning in order to get enough done on the book. And what, what got lost in the shuffle, of course, was sleep. So you learn to get by with less sleep. But the idea of, well, I know my children and the wife need me, but I'm busy, that would be, a, I think, a bad choice. It would have been a bad choice for me. Even though this book I thought would might be important and I needed to get it done, whether I got it done this year or the next year or the year after that really isn't that big a deal. It's just more time, uh, less sleep. It's just a little harder, harder way to do it. But it's much more important to give to those that need you when they need you and not put any of that off and then do your work later. Do your work after everybody else is asleep or do your work after the kids are to bed. And, and uh, Pamela at the time, had a, a lot of this, had a job that was very demanding. And she had a lot of things that she needed to do in the evening as well. So, and sometimes she was taking courses and other such things. So then she was busy doing that. I was busy doing, you know, writing the book. And she and I did some of that together. She was my uh, number one proofreader as I was writing my book. I'd, I'd give her things, and uh, she would uh, read over them and give me comments back. So some of it we did together. But family comes first. Relationships come first because that's where your learning is. And, yes, you can do things that are important to a lot of people, but if you do those, at least in my sense at that time, if it happened a year or two later, then that's just the way it had to happen. You can't, uh, you know, what is it, the ends justify the means? You can't say, well, I have a good ends here, so, you know, I can be a lousy father and a lousy, you know, husband, but, you know, the ends justify it. No, it's not like that. You got, you have to, you have to get your priorities right, and if you do, everything else will work out just fine. You know, you, you will, you will do those big projects that are important, will get done, and they will get done and still be effective. Maybe not the way you planned it or the way you'd like it to be, but uh, pay attention to your relationships, the people in your life uh, that you're that you're close to. And you know, you still have to go to work, and you have to do a good job, you know, at work. 
Um, you can't just uh, put everything else off because you've got a, a pet project, even if that pet project is very important. All right, Tom, the second part um, in this is um, the work you've done on Primal Man, Primal Woman, your new book that's just coming out, has been appreciated by a lot of people. Adam mentions that it's helped very much and understands the paradigm shift in relationship thinking. Um, he asks, though, what if your lady's serious problems are associated with other people's problems? Um, are there some problems of your partners, no matter how hard you may try, that uh, cannot be fixed by you? Exactly. There, there will always be things that you can't fix. Matter of fact, there's very little that you can actually fix directly. Um, but in this particular case, the problems are problems at work, or problems, uh, you know, with Aunt Susie, or problems with a brother or sister or somebody else uh, that are problematical and causing your your wife or your husband uh, a lot of emotional distress. You can't solve that problem, and you shouldn't try to solve it in the sense that, you know, try to uh, tell your wife what it is she should do and how she should interact with her sister or that she should just not talk to her sister anymore because the sister always upsets her or, you know, those kinds of things. Don't You don't help people by giving them answers to, you know, telling them what they should do. You, you help people by listening, by letting them talk to you about it. Oftentimes, particularly when a lady talks to you, she doesn't really want you to tell her what to do. She just wants you to listen and uh, uh, provide empathy and be there for support, not necessarily to give her a prescription of what it is she needs to do. She can figure out what she needs to do. Now, what you may do is give her some, some uh, options, some different ways of looking at the problem. Well, maybe your sister's so grumpy because of the fact that she's, you know, having really a hard time making ends meet. She can't meet her, you know, her house payment and other things. And, you know, her children are in trouble or something. Maybe we could help out there. You know, maybe we could give her some money for the next couple of months to cover some of her bills and whatever. You might find a way to solve things that way. So you could say that's one thing we could do. Or maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe that would just be feeding dysfunction. You know, you can, enab you can be an enabler for other people's dysfunction as well. And that may be a bad idea, but if you can think of three or four other ways to approach a problem, not as a, this is what you should do, but just that, well, I've been thinking about it and take it or leave it, but, you know, here's some, here's some ideas I had without any, um, you know, any demands or any pressure that you should pick one of these ideas or here's the best one. It's just, like almost like it's academic. You're just going through the logical possibilities with her just to help her see some of them. But you're right behind her 100%, whatever she chooses to do, even if that's do nothing. Then you will just listen and be as much comfort as you can, uh, and that's really all you can do about it. So, yes, he's right. There are problems that you just don't have any way to fix, and there's some problems you'll have that, that aren't outside of they're not outsiders creating the problem. It's just maybe your significant other has a fear, a very strong fear of being inadequate or, or um, you know, being taken advantage of or being abused or something, and they just have this very strong fear. And you can't 
say, oh, listen to this. You've got this fear, you know, and here's your problem and you need to fix that. You know, that's not being helpful. You just then need to create an environment that is so secure that your significant other can outgrow the fear on their own without you ever mentioning the fear, without you ever, uh, you know, dealing with it directly. Just create the environment that helps the significant other, uh, you know, deal with it themselves. And sometimes if the fear is deep enough, they won't deal with it. And that's just the way it is. You need to just accept that as part of the way they are, and they may deal with it later, or they may not. What you'll give them is as secure and as loving and as good an environment as possible, and you will accept them just the way they are, and that's okay. If you have that attitude, then at least you're maximizing the probability of everybody growing up, including yourself, because that takes a lot of giving to uh, create that kind of an environment for another person. Then everybody grows up, or at least has the, the greatest opportunity, the greatest probability for growing up. But just because a person has an opportunity doesn't necessarily mean they're going to reach out and grab it. And in that case, you just, uh, you know, you, you accept it and continue to offer the very best environment you can. And perhaps they will, they will uh, grab an opportunity, perhaps they won't. And I know sometimes that's sad because you can see that this problem they're having makes them miserable, makes them unhappy. And you really would like to fix it for them, but you can't. They have to fix it, and you have to just accept that that's the way it, the way it is. And don't let it make you miserable and unhappy. You accept it with a smile and go on and uh, make the environment as positive as you can for yourself and everybody else. And Donna, you said this book that's about to come out. Uh, I don't know that <laughs> I would go that far as to say this book's about to come out. Uh, I'm trying to set aside more time so that I can actually work on it and, and get it out. But it's been, it's been a problem for me because I have more things to do than I have time to do it in. And of course, finishing this book is not on the, is, is not the, the closest, largest alligator, you know, so you don't spend much time on that because it can always be put off. So it does get put off, unfortunately. But, I'm going to try to reconfigure so that uh, I can put more time on it and actually get it going again. But it's been kind of lying untouched for six months. And I, I need to I need to fix that. But I know you're working on that. Um, the next two questions have come from Josh and Polly, and they have to do with balancing our life here with consciousness exploration. A very interesting question, first one from Josh. Um, you've cautioned us that we shouldn't be too swept up in NPMR. Um, but he asks, um, are there any benefits to becoming operationally aware in NPMR if two people are of equal levels or equal entropy? high entropy, um, does the person who is more oper uh, operationally aware in MPMR have any advantages uh, over that one who was more, say, PMR concentrated? And by NPMR, we're meaning non-physical matter reality and physical matter reality. Does the, does the person or being have an advantage uh, having spent time in NPMR and being more aware, does he have an advantage at death? No, 
No, there's no real advantage just in general for everybody, but there are advantages for individual people. Um, if these two people were identical, you know, identical people, uh, you know, twins that uh, thought alike and felt alike, had all the same experiences, and one could get uh, into the non-physical uh, larger reality and the other one could not, it, as far as their growth and growing up, it would just make really no difference at all. I would say very little difference. Well, let me put it a different. Let me say it different. It could, it could be such. It, depending on them, it could be such that it made no difference at all. It could be such that it might make a difference, and I'll tell you why it might make a difference. If these twins were both very left brain, okay, if they're both very left brain and they needed a, a show me, I need to have the experience. You know, if it's not my experience, it's not my truth, and I don't. You know, I think. All of this stuff is nonsense unless I can experience it. Well, if you come from that left, left brain dominant mode, then getting around in the larger consciousness system is, and doing things that are evidential there is a way to convince yourself that indeed there is a larger reality besides this physical one and that it is an independent reality of you. It's not just something you make up. It's not your imagination but it's real. If that is important to you, if that's important step to take on your path, then yes, getting into the larger cancer system can be helpful. If that's not an important step on your path, if that's not some something you have to go through, you can look at all the signs and all the, you know, read, you can read in the book about all the paranormal things and about the precognitive uh, dreams that people had and about healing and you know that tens of thousands of people you know, have researched and, and experienced these things and done these things and that it's very credible. And you really don't have to have any more proof than that. You just accept that that's the way the world is. Then to go and do it is not necessarily a big deal. Yes, if it's your experience, it'd be your truth. But you, you already are at a point nine 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 with it. And it, to make it the point nine 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 or the one, isn't really all that important. So in that case, um, you know, it wouldn't really make any difference. In general, what what growing up is about is getting rid of fear and getting rid of ego, belief, expectations, those things. If you can get rid of that, then you're going to evolve. Your quality of consciousness will go up. Your entropy will go down and life will be good. And you don't need to get into the non-physical reality frames to do that. You can do that right here. So from that sense, the key thing that matters doesn't really have anything to do with getting into the non-physical reality frame. Now, I spent a lot of time in the non-physical reality frame because I was trying to understand how does all this work. And the only way to figure out how it worked would be to get there and do experiments there to deal with it and uh, you know, try to understand how and why it works. And that required access. So I spent a lot of time doing that. But as far as the growing up, you can grow up without it. You don't have to do anything that is paranormal in order to, to grow up. And does it help? Does it help you grow up faster? Nah, not necessarily. Depends on what you want to do with it. If you don't want to if, if you're not in the, in the mode of using the non-physical to explore and to verify 
and to understand if it's just a matter of having an experience, you know, if it's on if it's an equivalent thing to getting on a roller coaster, you know, at the carnival, then it's of no value at all to your growing up. It's just entertainment. It's just, yeah, I can do this. I can, you know, I can remote view and, uh, you know, I can heal and I can do these things. Wow, gee whiz, so what? You know, it doesn't really make any difference um, to you if you're not really using it to learn. If you're practicing your healing so that you can, you can feel better about the fact that this reality exists outside of you, not just in your own mind, but it's an external thing to you. Then, and if that's important to you, and if you need that, then it can help you. So it depends on the individual. Many individuals kind of have this feeling that if they can't get out of body and they can't uh, see auras and whatever, then they must not be very spiritually uh, evolved. You know, they're just still down at the, you know, step one and not doing well, and that's just not the case. You can be very spiritually evolved and never do any of that sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's available to you. The more you let go of fear and ego and belief, the easier it is to do these things. But if you don't have any real good reason for doing them, then you may uh, be very evolved and never done any of them and really don't care to do any of them. And that would be perfectly fine. It's not a... It's not like it's something that you have to do on your on this path of evolution of your consciousness. You can uh, you can avoid that altogether and not lose anything. It's only if you need that because it's a block. Otherwise, you've got this ego, this intellectual block that you can't get through unless you have these experiences. And that's a that's something you have to do to help you get through that block. But if you don't have the block, then it's unnecessary. All right, there's another question to do with balancing this life and our consciousness explorations. This one is from Pally also. Um, he learns, he seems to learn a lot um, and be more productive away from chaos and noise of the crowd, noises of the crowds and psychic noises, um, practicing meditative state. The results for him are positive with this. What he asks is, would such an approach, as opposed to fully immersing ourselves in society, be more helpful to people in general? Well, it depends on where they are in their growth. If you are a, a well, I say a beginner. If you're, you know, most all of us are beginners, right? If you, if you are early in your your development of your ability to meditate and to uh, hang for indeterminate amount of time, you know, whatever, however long you want to in the uh, point consciousness state, if you're still working on that, it does help to find a quiet place to meditate. It does help to, uh, you know, not be in a busy uh, environment, and that's physical environment or psychic environment. You know, and he's right there. You know, when you go to when you go to class, when you go to school, it's a lot easier to learn if, if everybody in the class isn't uh, having a conversation at the same time. All of that background just gets in the way. Everybody needs to be quiet, and they all need to listen to the instructor, and everybody can learn more that way. So, yes, he's right. That is a, that is a better place to learn. But now, as you do learn, you find that you're, you're not so sensitive to that. You shouldn't have to always go off and, and find a, a you know, perfectly quiet place. Eventually, 
you ought to be able to achieve the same kind of success with your meditation. You ought to be able to be able to go to that point conscious state and stay in it even when you're in a very crowded, busy, physical and psychic environment. You need to learn to do that in a way because it makes you stronger. It makes it easier. It builds up uh, resiliency and robustness in your meditation. Otherwise, if it's if I don't have it perfectly quiet and if the room isn't dark and if I don't have the incense on and you know and I have it, it doesn't smell nice and the music isn't playing just right, then I can't meditate. You see, that's a very fragile meditation. There's so many things that can prevent you from meditating if you depend on all of these things to give you the right ambience so that you can meditate. That I would say is a very fragile ability to meditate. Better to make it a robust ability that you can do it anywhere, anytime, and under almost any circumstances. While you have a toothache, you need to be able to meditate. You know, whatever. That's just building robustness into your meditation. Now, if that's, you know, if that's not important to you, and uh, you always have a dark, quiet place, and you really don't need robustness, Follow your own path. You know, don't do what Tom Campbell says. Just do what your intuition says that you need to do. If you feel like now I need a quiet place because everything's kind of tenuous and my meditations are fragile, then go find a quiet place. Um, after you are really strong in that quiet place, just test and see if you couldn't go to a little busier, less quiet place and do as well. And at first it'll be hard because you've gotten habituated it to a certain environment, but just go ahead and work at it and eventually it'll get easier and then you're, you'll be more robust. So yes, quiet places and, and getting out of the hubbub is a good thing to do, particularly when you're learning. Uh, don't get trapped into it so it's that you have to have a very specific environment in order to be able to meditate. Because the times when you might need it most may be times when you don't have that uh, environment that you're used to. Okay, Tom, if we could go back for a moment to Josh and his question on other benefits of NPMR exploration. I think you would like to expand further on this question. Josh? Yeah, thank you. Um, Tom, I was mainly uh, going for, you know, two people who are at the same level of entry, entropy, whether high or low, um, if one did do MPMR exploration and was kind of, you know, operationally aware there during their physical experience that uh, would there be advantages after the PMR experience packet is over versus somebody who was at, uh, you know, roughly the same level but didn't do any um, exploration? Yeah, the same answer. It's, it uh, may depend on the individuals and what they need, what blocks they have in their way, but assuming that all of that's the same, and they don't have, you know, they don't have very specific blocks that they need that to get over, then I'd say it really doesn't matter much. Whether or not anybody ever gets into the non-physical is, is really not that important. It's one of the least important things that you can do in this path of growing up. The only, you know, the, the only reason there is to investigate and to use it as a, as a classroom. If you just use it as a thing to do, a gee whiz, then there's no value in it at all. If you can use it as a classroom just to 
because you're interested in, in, in the mechanics of how everything works, then fine. But if you're really not interested in the mechanics of how everything works, um, it's just, it's just not that important. It gives people a, it gives people a sense of, of, uh, being part of the bigger thing, but they really can gain that sense without getting into the non-physical. So my answer really doesn't change much, uh, for that. It's just the, it's not all that important fundamentally, and it may be helpful to some people some of the time. But unless you're, you're trying to, um, you know, do what I did, you know, you're trying to write a book to describe to people, you know, the nature of consciousness and how it works, then you really don't need to need to go there. Okay, the next question is from Justin S. on out-of-body experiences. Um, after struggling for some time with trying to see more clearly during OBEs, it struck me that trying to see was a silly idea in the first place. I realized that I had been ignoring various thoughts and mental impressions because I could not see or hear them. I have gradually learned to focus more on the impressions and ideas that occur as the real stuff of NPMR. Oftentimes after doing this, vision and sound will naturally follow. It seems that mental impressions are the primary means of receiving NPMR data, while thought or intent is the primary means of sending data. Could you talk more about some of these concepts and what things to consider while learning to navigate and interpret? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely uh, right in your, in your assessment. Uh, what you, when you couldn't see and hear things and you were having problems with it and it just wasn't seeming to work, that's because you had a belief. And a belief, of course, creates an expectation. So you had this expectation that when you got into this larger reality, it would be just sort of like this one. You'd be able to look around, you'd see things, you'd hear things. And it's sort of like uh, getting an airplane and flying to Mexico. You know, you would just get an airplane, fly to a non-physical reality, and you'd get out and you'd look around and you'd see and hear and interact. And it's not like that. And it's that, that belief that it is just that the, the non-physical is just like the physical, except just a little different, you know, isn't the way it is. So that belief is the problem. It creates an expectation. So you go there and you're listening. You're looking and you don't see anything. There isn't any being of light. There isn't any, uh, um, you know, conversation. And therefore you kind of discount what it is you're experiencing. You say, well, that wasn't right. I didn't get anything that time. When all the time you are getting information, but because it's not in the format of vision and hearing that you're looking for, you don't see it. You know, that's like when you, uh, you know, you lose something and you're looking for it and in your mind it's in a manila envelope and you look all over your desk and you just can't see it. And then later you find out it was right square in the middle of your desk, but it wasn't in a manila envelope, so you didn't ever notice it because you were looking for something else. It's that same way. You get, you're probably getting all the information that you could wish for, but you just can't connect to it. It's just not there. You're not processing it because it's not the information you're looking for. Well, the point is you shouldn't be looking for anything at all. Looking for something, having expectations or beliefs about what it's going to be like is a big problem. So you read Bob Monroe's book, and he tells you about all the things he saw and heard, and you want to see and hear things like Bob Monroe, and that will probably be 
one of the biggest hurdles you'll have to get over because you're not Bob Monroe and you're not going to process the same way Bob Monroe processed. You're not going to have his experiences. You have to have your own. And what you want to have is his because those are the experiences you think are the real thing. That's what somebody who's there has because that's what he had and he did it and he was real and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not like that. So that's why I don't like to tell a lot of people about what I experience and how I experience because they automatically pick that up as that's the right thing. That's the right answer. Now I need to get the right answer. And if I don't get that right answer, I'm not doing it right. And that will be the biggest problem they'll have as far as doing it at all. And when you give up on that, it's probably when you said, this just isn't working. I'm not, you know, I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. It isn't working. I give up. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to go there and let's let it be. And then suddenly something starts happening because you finally relaxed, let go of your, of your need to have it come a certain way. And then you're able to actually get it the way it does come. And yes, it is intuitive. It is telepathic. You get concepts, you get metaphors, you get chunks of things. You hardly ever get language. No, I say hardly ever. You can get language sometimes. Sometimes you'll hear something. It's just a clear spoken sentence as, as anyone that you would hear in a physical reality. But most of the time, that's not the way it works. Those cases where it does work that way, it's because it's been specifically given to you that way for a, for a purpose, not because it's just sometimes like that or it's generally that way. It's because that's been given to you that way for a purpose. It's an it's a anomaly. Mostly, you just have to open your mind to whatever comes. Just be open. So here I am and open for information and however it might come to me. And then if something comes, don't judge it. Don't say, well, that wasn't what I expected or that didn't amount to much. Or, what can I make of that? Instead of analyzing it and judging it instantly, which is what we do out of habit, just accept it. Accept it. Take it in and be open for more. And perhaps you'll get stuff that will make sense eventually. So if you continue to do this and nothing ever does make any sense, well, it's one of two things are going on there. You're, you are filtering out the real information or there is no real information. It could be either one. You may not really be in a good altered state. You may just be, you know, think that you are. So there could be, you know, Either of those things could be wrong, or more likely, you are in a state, but you have expectations of what you're going to get, the form it's going to be in, and you're not getting your expectation, therefore you get nothing at all. Um, that's common. That's what happens to most people. They read the books, and then they want to go have somebody else's experience. Just open up and be non-critical at first. Eventually, let's say you find a being, and you want to converse with this being. Or you don't even find, you just want to find a being. So you say, hey, anybody out there, you know, willing to talk to me about such and such? I'd like to know, you know, and you talk a little bit about it, and then you wait. And then you get a voice. And if the first thing you do after you hear, I say get a voice, you'll get some information back. You'll get a connection. And if the first thing you do is say, well, did I just make that up? Was that me or was that outside of me? You've already taken the first step to losing it and turning it into nothing. You just have to accept it. Go with it. Have that conversation. Have the interplay. Have it a dozen times, two dozen times, and then judge it. 
It's not that you just take everything at face value and never judge anything. It's just you can't judge it before you have enough data to um, to judge it intelligently. You see, so after you've been working with it for some weeks or some months, now you can look back and say, has this been useful? Have I learned something? Has this been valuable for me to do? And if the answer is no, well, then don't do it anymore. Try never a different approach. Let that go. If the answer is yes, then maybe you might think how you'd like to move it into a different phase or a different place or do something else with it. Then try that. So, yes, you do eventually have to be critical and make judgments, but not until you've collected enough experience with that subject in order to have enough data where you can really make a good uh, uh, judgment and a good analysis of it. And it's one of the biggest problems people have. They immediately want to analyze and judge the instant they get something, and then nothing ever works out for them. And that's because they're no longer open. They're no longer just sitting there open. They're, they're questioning, they're judging, and that, that kind of gets in the way. So does that answer your question, or do you want a little different slant on it? Is that good, Justin? Okay, I can't hear from. Can you hear um, me now? Yes. Okay, I'm having to use the, the uh, computer microphone, so I may not be quite as loud. That answers it really well, Tom. Thank you. But one thing that confuses me is, is when I have a experience that's extremely vivid as opposed to one that's uh, groggy and hard to control. Is that, would you attribute that to my approach during the experience, or is it the data is maybe lining up with my own filter just right, that it uh, goes smoothly? Does that make sense? Yeah, it could be either one of those. It could be a multiple of things. It could be you're in a better altered state. It could be you're, uh, you know, you're more focused in your, with your consciousness, isn't uh, jumping around as much. Or it could be, just as you say, that uh, if you get data that you just can't process, you know, if you get data that is so outside of your own experience that it's hard for you to understand it in terms of metaphor, it's hard for you to understand it in terms of language, then it tends to be foggy because it's, it's, it's like there's nothing you can do with the data. You don't have the proper experience to be able to translate that data into thoughts. We think in terms of language, and if we can't translate it into, into thoughts, into language, then we can't think about it. So then it, it, it appears to be very foggy and, and um, you know, nonspecific. So it could be you know, both of those are you know, all of the above, probably, various times. But the ones that are, that are very, very clear, and as you say, you develop, once you let go of the idea that you have to see anything, then you actually begin to see things. And once you let go of the idea that you're going to hear anything, then you begin hearing things. What it means is now you feel free to interpret these things into vision and, and uh, sound. So you're making that interpretation. Before, you were afraid to make the interpretation, probably because you were afraid it would be wrong or afraid it wouldn't be the right thing. And that fear of, of not knowing and not having the right answer is enough to, to block it most of the time. So all of the above, 
sometimes are just clearer than others. Um, often it has to do with the state that you're in, whether you have a real good uh, state. You know, maybe you just uh, ate something with sugar in it and your, your mind's a little fuzzy or um, yeah, it could be anything almost. It's hard to tell, but I noticed that too. The, when I was practicing, when I was out at Bob's, sometimes we're just not as good as others. There were times when you were kind of on your game and times when you were off, and it has to do with your physiology because your physical state sets the constraints on your consciousness, and it's also in the material you're dealing with because you can't interpret what's outside of your experience or what's too far outside of your experience, or you can't interpret it very well. Okay, this, this leads us into the next question by Polly. Um, when we feel low on energy, what does it actually mean? I think this is something of what you were speaking about, perhaps. Do you, Tom, sometimes feel down? And if so, what is your strategy to deal with the state? Um, does it have something to do with our connection and conscious or unconscious communication with the larger consciousness system? Well, like most things, there's probably 10 different reasons why you might feel at a low energy, feeling down in that, in that sense. Uh, it could be physiological. Again, the, the, the virtual body, the virtual brain, and, and uh, so on, set constraints on what the consciousness can, can, uh, can do. So the, the consciousness gets this data stream, but the data stream has to be in consonance with the rule set. And the rule set of the, the body and the brain, you know, there's a rule set about the biochemistry that goes on there and, and so on, and that, uh, that can limit that data stream. The data stream has to be in consonance with, with the uh, virtual reality. That's the way virtual realities work. So it may be physical things that are bothering you, or it may be non-physical things that are bothering you. If you happen to be in a mood where you're just not sure of anything or you feel like you're kind of dead-ended, you've been working, you know, you've been mining a vein of growth for a while and now it just kind of peters out and you're not doing anything anymore or you just feel like you're wasting your time. Those kinds of things can sap your energy. They sap your uh, confidence and you just aren't, uh, you know, just feel like there's no point in doing something because it's just not working for you. Well, that's you being dead-ended. That's your ego. The ego isn't getting the feedback it wants. It's like um, the ego isn't getting the uh, communication the way it wants it, therefore it doesn't hear anything. Um, that you can change just by a change of attitude. If you feel really uh, lethargic for uh, reasons of, of uh, consciousness, it's probably just attitudinal, and you can fix it with an attitudinal adjustment. Um, if it's if it's physiological, like you have, um, what is it called, um, uh, fatigue syndrome, okay, then it's a, it's a physical thing. It has, it's, it's a, uh, you know, like a, a viral problem in your body that uh, makes your body dysfunctional, and you, you get the sense of that dysfunction and the fact that you're tired all the time. Uh, it doesn't mean any one thing. There's just lots of different things that can that can uh, get there. But mostly, even if it is physical, you can use your mind to overcome it. 
even when you feel, oh, you know, disadvantaged in a sense. Let's say uh, I make a, well, this happens to me a lot. I go give a workshop and at lunchtime uh, I get some food and I say, well, is there any sugar in this? And they say, oh, no, no, there's no sugar in that. And I eat it and, of course, it gives me a problem because there is sugar in that. They just didn't think about all the ingredients and the ingredients would have sugar in the ingredient. No, nobody put sugar in it, and but they don't know that because they used mayonnaise as in the ingredient that, sure, of course it has sugar in it because mayonnaise all has sugar in it, you see. Or they used, you know, breadcrumbs, and the breadcrumbs all have preservatives and sugar in them, and they don't think about that. So sometimes I'll be at lunch, and I'll get something like that. A lot of times it's hard to avoid. So now... You know, I'm instead of running on, uh, you know, all six cylinders, I'm only running on maybe three because I've had sugar and preservatives and my mind is fuzzy and so on. And I got to go back and stand up and give, you know, a talk for the next four or five hours. You just overcome it. You can just push your way through it. You clear your mind and out of sheer will and and, uh, force of intent, you just clear it up and go on and go through it. As opposed to saying, oh, no, now what am I going to do? Oh, this is awful. I'm really fuzzy. I'm not going to be able to do this very well. You see, that's starting to feel sorry for yourself and, and your ego is starting to get in charge. But if it's like, well, suck it up and, you know, go forward, do it, push through it. So that is something you can do even when you have physical problems. It's amazing what you can get through how much more energy you can muster, how better you feel, how more you, you know, how much more you feel like getting up and going and doing uh, just if you can, can uh, gather your attitude and your approach to something from a very positive way and just don't accept that as an answer. Like, well, I need to walk five miles now, but I'm really, really tired and don't feel like it. Well, if you need to, it's something you really need to do then you just suck it up and do it. And you can find that all the energy that you thought you didn't have will come back to you if your attitude is really positive. So you can change that and change it quickly if you have, con- well, not control, but if, if you can focus your intent on the outcome and just do it no matter what the handicaps are, you will have energy. You are going to feel good. You are going to go dancing, you know, instead of staying home because you feel kind of whatever. Then, you know, just do it and get it past you. So you are more in control with your intent and with your consciousness than you think. Most of these things where we don't feel good or we feel low, even if they are physical, we have a, a great deal of, of um margin where we can modify that result if we have a strong intent and we don't have the fear of the ego that that uh, creates the problem. All right. Um, Raj has a question. He hasn't been able to speak through the microphone. There's some audio difficulties. Raj asks, I gather from MBT that on attaining sufficient complexity, PMR computers may develop or be able to host non-physical consciousness. However, biological entities that evolved in the PMR are born with a sentient, non-physical part or consciousness. First part of the question is, as organic matter was coalescing under special conditions to form the first living cell, 
At some point, the entity must have gained adequate complexity to host a consciousness similar to how a PMR computer could in the future. Is my understanding correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, the short answer to that is yes. Okay. The second part of the question is at what stage of embryo or fetus development does consciousness get attached to it? On fertilization or at birth or at an intermediate stage? Okay. Um, let me uh, kind of go back to the first question and, and uh, do a little more than the one word answer and then we'll go to the second part. Uh, if you give consciousness a, uh, this is a metaphor, a platform, say, or a, uh, uh, a situation in which it can grow, in which it can take hold, then it will. Okay? You, don't, you don't build in consciousness. That's part of the problem with the AI people trying to program consciousness. You don't program consciousness. You program an environment that allows consciousness to develop in that environment. And if you do, it will develop. Okay. Now, let's say we have a computer, and we've given this computer the, the attributes in which consciousness can develop within it. And um, you know, those attributes are, it needs to be able to process, there needs to be choices, and needs a finite decision space. Those decisions have to be able to you know, have an effect of changing uh, future decisions. Um, future choices, and so there's feedback. So it has all of these these things that um, would allow consciousness to take hold there. And now that computer uh, starts to interact with its own consciousness. So we have a conscious computer now, right? That consciousness in that that's hosted by that computer is still just the same as our consciousness. It's non-physical. It's a non-physical consciousness that's using a physical body, a virtual physical body in a virtual reality that call a computer, just like our body, you know, it has all these cells and all the very, you know, complicated structure that's in our physical body. You can have a lot of complicated structure in a computer. And if if this computer will host a consciousness, just like our body and brain can host a consciousness, then the consciousness will develop there. So the consciousness will develop wherever it has a, you know, an environment that allows it to develop, that encourages its development. So we don't have to, to um, make a consciousness. We just have to give it a place to exist, a place where it can, it can take hold and, and develop and grow and, Evolve, so that's the that's kind of a little more uh, around the around the first question. So basically, his understanding was was correct. So now, okay, given that that happens, so what stage of an embryo or fetus does you know does the consciousness and we say get attached to, but see, a consciousness isn't really attached. You know, again, the attachment is a metaphor. We just talk about it attaching because we physical beings in this physical reality, if we make connections, we, we, you know, we see that in terms of, of a physical connection, an attachment. So we somehow have this consciousness and it has to attach to our body. You know, that's what the silver cord was for back in the days of Muldoon and, and, uh, and uh, Fox and other people first studied the outer body. You know, they had to, they had to imagine a silver cord in order to, uh, 
in order to have the metaphor, the silver cord was a metaphor for the attachment, the connection between the consciousness and the body. What we have instead of a silver cord or some kind of physical connection like that, and it's not a, you know, other people see the brain as kind of a transducer, like the consciousness, you know, is almost like the brain is a radio receiver and consciousness is the transmitter. And then the consciousness communicates with the body through this brain receiver. And that's not true either. That's just another metaphor. It doesn't work like that at all. Consciousness is non-physical. Consciousness can attach to a physical thing. You don't attach non-physical things to physical things. So consciousness is non-physical. It uses a physical thing to provide constraints on its data stream. Now, so when would an individuated unit of consciousness use an embryo or fetus as it develops to develop its constraints on its data stream? Well, it wouldn't obviously until it, you know, had some function that would produce constraints. If it's just, say, it's just a conception and there's just two cells there, you know, an egg and a sperm cell, and that's it. Well, what kind of constraints does that place on a consciousness who would use that zygote, you know, to modify its data set? I mean, its data stream. Well, nothing. You see, there's nothing there to do. We don't have enough going on there for a consciousness to have a data stream defined for it by the constraints of this physical system. So the physical system, fetus or embryo or whatever, has to develop to the point where it is having experience, where it can experience, where it can, you know, see or feel or hear or emote or something. And then the physical structure of that fetus then will limit as a constraint on what it can think or feel or emote. So it would be very, very minor, right? The constraints would almost be a block. There's very little would be going on there. The constraint would just about block out any data that you could think of. As that fetus grows, then what it can, those constraints lift. Let's put it that way. As it grows, those constraints lift because now it can see, hear, think, and feel things. And so it's that sort of thing. There is no specific time. It depends on the individuated unit of consciousness. When does it start to use a physical thing to limit its data stream? In other words, when does it use a physical thing as an avatar? When is that profitable? Well, it could be, say, at three or four months of pregnancy. Because there's sensations there, you know, the baby is moving around, it's kicking and thumping, it's got a heart beating, uh, it does flips, it's pushing, it's, it's got a sensory, uh, you know, it's getting sensory information. It hears sounds from outside, it hears internal sounds, you know, the mother's heart beating and, and that kind of thing, but it also hears music and it hears the voices of its mom and its dad and its siblings and it, it's got a fair amount going on there as far as its perception, and that then can limit the data stream or create a data stream to the individuated unit of consciousness. So when would you, as, a, as an IUOC, want to connect 
When is it worth your time? When is there something to learn? When can you start to familiarize yourself with this, with this uh, avatar? And depending on the individual unit of consciousness and dependent on the, the physical system, this physical system could be a fetus, uh, it could happen sooner or later. So there isn't a set time for that to happen. But I would say at least when the fetus is old enough to uh, uh, have a fair amount of uh, data coming into its uh, physical sensors. In other words, it can, you know, it maybe can see where it's, when it's light or dark, or it can hear sounds from the room, from its parents, from its siblings. It can, uh, uh, you know, it can hear the mother's heartbeat and its own heartbeat, and it can move and punch and do somersaults, and all of that is physical sensation. So at that point, it might be interesting for an IUOC to uh, connect and have that as its avatar, uh, kind of follow that process on to uh, birth and then onward after that, or it may want to wait. It might, it might want to wait, um, you know, until, you know, the eighth or ninth month, or maybe until, you know, after the birth. It, there's not a, a rule that says there's a certain time when a, when a consciousness uh, can use a physical entity as, a, as an avatar. Um, you know, almost anything can happen in a, in a digital system like this. So there is no specific point. It may be at most any time, but probably not before there's enough uh, physical um, uh, sense data providing constraints for the data stream for the consciousness. So is that, uh, is that a, a good enough answer? Raj also wants to know, does the fetus need consciousness to physically move around or animate? No, it doesn't need consciousness to do that. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a virtual entity. It's a, a virtual body having a, you know, a virtual baby, if you will. All of this is done in, in a computer. It's a computer simulation. So, it doesn't need, you know, the physical, the simulation doesn't need the consciousness to help run the, you know, run the simulation. The simulation is, is separate. So the consciousness attaches to a physical system when that physical system provides, you know, good uh, constraints for its data stream so that it's an interesting thing to do. Um, the, the fetus doesn't require consciousness to, to do what it does. It does what it does because of the rule set, the way its cells divide, the way they differentiate. Um, you know, all of that happens according to the rule set, the rule set that drives physics and biology and, and all the rest of that. That's all part of the simulation. The consciousness uh, just uh, connects to that, starts accepting uh, a data stream from that entity's viewpoint, whether that entity is a fetus or, you know, a year old. It uh, makes that connection. Other than that, then the, the entity would not have any consciousness until that connection's made. So certainly by the time you know, the infant is born and is interacting with parents and is looking around and doing things, uh, one would assume that there is a consciousness making decisions because indeed there are choices for it to make at that point. You know, it has uh, some choices. But it could probably, if it's a special situation, it, it may put that off a while later and just let the let's let the system make choices uh, that are probable. 
you know, it's a digital system. Almost anything can happen. There's not these hard and fast rules of when certain things have to have to happen or not happen. And somebody's asking, I'm not sure if they're joking, but they're asking about zombies. Are there zombies living among us? Zombies in the philosophical sense. <laughs> um, well, we'll uh, you know, for the majority of the population, right? We all tend to be zombies uh, sometimes. <laughs> By that, I'm I'm using zombie now as a metaphor for we do things just because they're habit. You know, we do things out of habit. You know, we go to, I go down to the bottom of my mountain, I take a right turn because that's what I do almost all the time when I go down to the mountain. There's occasional times when I really want to make a left turn. Half the time, I make the right turn first, and then go. Oh, oh, what am I doing? You know, I'm not paying attention here. So we tend to operate on uh, automatic and, and go through our life uh, without really being too aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And in that case, I'd say it's a good description. We're just zombies. You know, we're not <laughs> learning much. We're not really making choices. Our free will is asleep. We're just on uh, on automatic pilot, and we go, and, and that's not a good way to live your life, but we all do that from time to time. 